Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin and Global Finance Podcast with me, Jason Dean. Here we talk about all things Bitcoin and all things financial and try and make some sense of them. If you'd like to get in touch with me, then I'll give you some contact details at the end of this podcast. Or if you're listening on YouTube, just leave a comment below. It's great to have you here with me today as we dive into our chosen subject for this podcast. So welcome to My Neighbour, The Markets and What's Coming Next. So this all started when I visited my neighbours recently, um, at a safe distance of course, because at the time I'm recording this, we're still in lockdown here in the UK. Um, And I came around to return a sort of a well-wiped-down games console that my tween kids had borrowed of them for a while. And these neighbours, they're a lovely young couple. Um, They only just bought the house um, at the end of last year. Um, from possibly the grumpiest people to have ever walked the planet. So the contrast in atmosphere between our properties is now very welcome. But we had this lovely little chit-chat standing at a distance of two metres. And during that, she revealed that she thought she was going likely to be made redundant as soon as the UK government's furlough scheme ended, which uh, we're now in July, and that's scheduled to end in October 2020, Um, It was extended to that, but actually employees have to start contributing from August onwards to to some degree. So the thing is, like everyone else on that scheme, which is estimated to be some 8.9 million people at the moment, according to official government figures, um, she'd been receiving 80% of her pay, entirely funded by the UK government, uh, on condition that she stayed at home. Now, the thing is, she's in event management. And that industry naturally, of course, relies on the coming together of large groups of people, which is something which is absolutely taboo at the moment with COVID-19 happening around us. So as a result, of course, that industry had been pretty much wiped out around us by the lockdown. So she feared, and as it turned out quite rightly, that as soon as the furlough scheme ended, or at least when employers started having to contribute towards it, she would be made redundant. And in fact, it was only a couple of days after we had that conversation that that call came in. A whole team was offered voluntary redundancy, so it's better than some, I guess, if they agreed to leave immediately. But the thing is, this scenario is no longer unusual, and it's certainly not isolated. And during that same conversation, we started comparing notes about people we knew who were in similar positions and the extreme measures that others had gone to in order to pay those bills. So between us, we knew of airline pilots now driving Tesco delivery trucks, a mortgage broker who was now also working in a supermarket and London PR agency staff now working in fields being paid to bring in potatoes rather than schmooze with clients. And that was just the people we knew. Presumably, everyone has got similar stories. Some of them have been furloughed for a while and then been let go, and others have simply saw their companies crumble and fail completely. But of course, these stories are just that right now. They're anecdotal retellings of individual positions where it's quite likely we don't know the whole picture. And on their own, they're useful. They give an analyst like me context. But it's not enough to draw, you know, concrete conclusions from unless those stories become more commonplace and swell in numbers across a large social group. And at the moment, we're probably not there yet. However, one thing is abundantly clear, at least anecdotally. 
It's now an open secret that many companies are only existing because of the furlough scheme and will start paying staff as soon as that scheme ends. In other words, when that money stops coming in from the government, so will the employment, such as it is at the moment. And of course, if that is true, the implications of this are on a scale we haven't even seen yet. And this got me thinking because it's only part of the story. So for people like me who have more than a passing interest in the markets and the companies they're made up of, we know that in many cases the picture really wasn't as rosy as it appeared in the first place anyway. So strategies like over-leveraging or running at huge losses to gain market share and then fund it by rounds of capital investment and things like this are now commonplace. And the reason for this is that they please markets in a way that doesn't really make much sense fundamentally. So the list of large companies that have already collapsed both in the UK and the rest of the world really does read like a who's who of former stock market darlings. And first it was those who were in poor positions to begin with. And that would include especially people in the retail and food and drink sectors. And then those wiped out by global lockdowns, such as travel and car hire firms. And this process has shed hundreds of thousands of jobs. I mean, probably more realistically, millions of jobs with little prospect of them being replaced quickly. And the scariest aspect of all of this is that these job losses are hidden in a veritable tsunami of jobless claims that that people now accept as normal anyway. The problem is that most of us are now dismissing what's going on using this kind of universal get-out-of-jail-free card that is, it's because of COVID-19. It'll all be okay when we go back to normal. And that's because we're in this weird place. It's easy to justify statements like this, and markets soar at the moment on data that shows, oh, only a few more million people lost their jobs, which is something that in normal times would cause a fire sale of pretty much everything. The thing is, it does feel like economic stimulus right now is being confused with economic growth, and that is a really dangerous path. A lot of these big companies have received bailouts from governments to guarantee their survival. And this is a process I've always been very cynical about unless it comes with very specific caveats from that same government on how that money is used, which it almost never does. I mean, how many times have we seen government money spent on stock buybacks and executive pay before the company itself gets really the leftovers? And some of those big companies are using the situation to force changes they've been trying to make for years. So in the UK, for example, British Airways, our flagship airline, has been having a long and well-documented struggle to move its older and, ironically, most loyal staff on preferential contracts to newer, much less attractive ones, which, of course, are far cheaper for the company. This is a move that has, understandably, created a lot of dissatisfaction in the company and a seemingly endless stream of strike action, probably costing more than simply leaving the contracts alone would have done in the first place. But here's the thing, with that ubiquitous COVID-19 clause, British Airways may finally have a wedge to get their way. I mean, after all, who's going to resist when the only alternative is unemployment in a market where it could be years before any sort of normality returns? And then there's the next question. Will British Airways really be the only ones who do this? 
Would most workers agree that they are likely to come out of this with a better, stronger and more lucrative contract than when they went in? Or are they more likely to be asked to make further sacrifices for the good of the company? Put it this way, are we really expecting every company to come out of mothballs, switch the lights on and carry on where we left off? And if not, what's that percentage going to be? Is it going to be 90%? 80%? Is it going to be less than that? And of course, the lower that percentage, the higher the impact on the company's supply chain, which creates a multiplier effect and drives down productivity and earnings further, creating another knock-on effect. Now, I will admit that I have allowed a bit of cynicism to creep into this podcast. And the reason for that is I still find it utterly incredulous that markets are still continuing to make new highs, NASDAQ just last week, or even in the best case, just refusing to acknowledge what's bubbling under the surface. The markets haven't collapsed. They're still growing in some cases. Now, I do acknowledge, of course, that markets are generally future looking. So this is all about what people think companies' future earnings are going to be. But to think that future earnings will really bounce back to pre-crisis levels in the next year or so just seems unlikely to me. That V-shaped recovery that everyone's been talking about, come on, that's not going to happen. Now, we are, as humans, pretty resourceful and we can do all kinds of really incredible stuff. But the fact remains that large-scale macroeconomic mop-ups take time. They always take years and they often take decades. And let's not forget that we have already printed more money than we ever have before with the promise of much, much more to come. Not just from the US, not just from the UK, but pretty much everywhere. So we are about to enter a period of significant readjustment in a way that we can't even be sure about yet. I mean, the rule book is literally out of the window right now. Now, analysts like me, of course, will try and refer back to any situation that's been similar in the past, but we've never really been here before. The only large-scale pandemic really in modern history is the Spanish flu, which occurred around 1918. But at that time, social infrastructure wasn't established as it is now, or even as important as it is now. And of course, there was one other difference. We were using gold standard currencies, not printer-friendly fiat. Remember, we can produce as much cash now as we want to. Yet, despite all of this, And though it may not seem the case with what I've been saying, I am actually an internal and unwavering optimist. I have absolutely no doubt that we'll ultimately come through the other side, whenever that may be, and move on as we have done from any crisis that has come before, and we'll deal with it in whatever form it takes. The trouble is, I'm not convinced that the pain that absolutely must come first has yet been properly recognised, and it certainly hasn't been accounted for at this point. So back in the real world, my neighbour, and almost certainly countless others, many of whom haven't even spotted it's coming yet, are scrambling to secure whatever income they can in the form of a currency whose devaluation rate is actually increasing by the minute the faster those printing presses run. So this being the case, I would probably suggest right now that any proposed investment in the markets at large be taken with a serious modicum of caution, or even perhaps better, a bucket load of caution. 
This might actually be a time when my young neighbour's anecdotal data reveals far more than any official top-line numbers ever will. And that is a fascinating thought. Thanks for listening today. If you've got any comments or questions on this podcast, please feel free to message me on Twitter at Jason A. Dean. Or if you'd like to know more on the subject of Bitcoin and global finance in general, then join me on medium.com forward slash at Jason A. Dean. Don't forget that E when you're typing out my name or you won't find me. Otherwise, I'll see you next time on the Bitcoin and global finance podcast.